and turn to Romans chapter 4 is where we're going to be tonight. We're also going to be in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 15, and we're even going to jump ahead in the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 6. What I hope to do tonight is to put together some of the, the background work that is, is going on, we'll say maybe behind the scenes, with our study in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3 in particular, Paul really begins to zero in on the work of justification, and he ties that to the, the covenant promise that was made with Abraham, the institution of the covenant, and the fulfillment of that covenant through Abraham. And so what I want to do is I, I want to look tonight specifically at this idea of Abraham, Abraham's justification, and the covenant that was made with Abraham, because I hope that this will serve as a a great supplement to our study in the book of Galatians by looking at some of these things that are happening in the life of Abraham, particularly with this promise that is being made to Abraham, okay? And in understanding that, and we start talking about Abraham, we start talking about salvation in the Old Testament, how is a person saved in the Old Testament, how was Abraham saved and others like them saved, and that leads us to understand justification in the right way, and, and that all of that really becomes a key to understanding what Paul is teaching about in the book of Galatians, he's talking about our justification in Christ. And so l- let me say this. W- why does this matter? Why uh, would we want to talk about this? Of course, we, it matters because it's a, it's a part of Scripture. It's a part of the teaching of Scripture. And, and so in that sense, it really becomes important for us to understand what it is that Scripture is teaching about. But also, uh, it's important that we know that not everyone views justification the way that we view justification. In fact, I mentioned this briefly. I didn't go into great depth about this, and and I'm not even going to go into incredible depth with it tonight, but I mentioned a few weeks ago when we came to that passage in Galatians chapter 2, talking about justification, that not everyone sees justification the way that we, as Protestants, as Baptists, view justification. I think the easiest way to summarize our view on justification is to use the, the phrase, that we are that we are saved that we are justified by faith alone through grace alone right so it's the work of grace by faith that we are saved in Christ that we are justified it doesn't have anything to do with your back Ground. It doesn't have anything to do with your past. And, and I, I mentioned this just briefly the other day that uh, Catholics, for example, that they view justification in altogether different means, that a, a part of uh, their doctrine, and I'm not trying, I don't want to turn this into, you know, a, a pick on Catholics kind of thing, but I want to use this as an example because maybe you've never thought that anybody else thinks of justification any differently th- than that. But for instance, uh, part of Catholic doctrine is the idea that. Uh, that at, an, in, at the time of an infant's baptism, when a, when a child is baptized, that they are infused, that they are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, then that there is, that, that is the beginning, that is the first fruits of justification. And so through being sealed with the covenant promise of their baptism, which is a sacrament in the Catholic Church, then now that child is marked, they are, they are marked by the Holy Spirit, and, and they are essentially, they begin this process through which, over time, they will be sanctified. They will be more and more like Christ. But it begins there at their baptism. There are other denominations as well that believe that baptizing a child is essential for that reason. Now, not everyone who baptizes infants believes that way. 
Uh, for instance, uh, Presbyterians, the, what we would call the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America, is not a large, very conservative, uh, evangelical even uh, denomination, Presbyterian denomination, do infant baptism. Pedo-baptism is the word that's used for that. And PCA believe that baptism of their little ones is a sign of the covenant. So in the same way that circumcision was a sign of the covenant promise in the Old Testament, they believe baptism of, of, their, of their children, of their little ones, is also a sign of the covenant. It's not salvific in any sense. They don't believe that it will save you. They don't believe that the child needs to be baptized in order that they're infused with the Holy Spirit, that they're set apart and, and justified before God. And so there are these ideas that are out there that, that have to do with justification and how it works. And because I believe it essential to our understanding of the gospel that we get justification right, the idea of justification right, I, I wanna drill down and really deal with this. And in order to do that, as, again, a supplement to what we see happening in Galatians, chapters 2, 3, and so on throughout the book of Galatians, I want us to look at Romans chapter 4 tonight. And as we dig into Romans chapter 4, it's going to begin talking about Abraham, and we're going to have to look backward then and understand what is going on here. I want to gain the context by going back to the source in Genesis as well. So I want to begin reading in Revelation, excuse me, Revelation, uh, that was a whole other thing, that we're not doing Revelation. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? The idea being here that what, what, what benefit was it to Abraham that he followed the Lord, that he obeyed the Lord in the Lord's command that he should be, that he should be circumcised and that he should circumcise his, his heirs? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what did the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then is it counted? was it counted to him? Was it before or was it after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Okay, what in the world is Paul saying, right? Paul tends to ramble on at different times. Now, it's not really rambling, but he, he chases these lines of reasoning that it's like he says, well, if this, and then he goes into this detailed explanation, and that's exactly what he's doing here in Romans chapter 4. And so he's dealing with the idea of our justification by faith, that we are saved not by works of the law, that we are saved by our faith in God, literally, specifically, faith in in God through the mediation of Jesus Christ. So it's through faith in Christ that we are saved. And he's showing us here that the law exists to show us our transgressions, but that the law will never save us. 
if it could, then our righteousness would be found in our works and not in the promise of Jesus, right? Which is why he says in verse 3 and verse 4, he says in verse 3 here that, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his dues. So if we were given salvation because of our works, then it would not be the free gift of God. It would be what we had earned. It would be what we deserved. Rather, our wages before God. And so the point of what he's saying is that no one has earned their salvation through the works, through keeping the law. And his example that he puts forward is Abraham, saying that Abraham believed God. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 15 there, saying Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the reason that he's bringing this up is to say that, listen, Abraham believed God. And so even prior to the circumcision, prior to his, his act of obedience, Abraham demonstrated faith. Circumcision here in this, again, in this example represents Abraham's obedience to God's command. And so prior to actually obeying God and acting in the way that God had called him to, Abraham had faith that if he honored God and did what God called him to do, that, that he would be justified, that he would be made right before God. And so he asked the question, was Abraham saved then? Was he justified before his circumcision or after his circumcision? The point is he was he was. He was justified before God. His faith came before he took action. So it wasn't because of Abraham's action that he was saved. We can't say, well, Abraham did these things. He, he obeyed God, and that's why he was saved. He's saying, no, it was because he had faith in the promise of God. Let's understand this by going back to the story of Abraham. And let's look, look in Genesis chapter I want to begin in Genesis chapter 12, read verses 1, 2, and 3. And then I want to jump into Genesis chapter 15, and then even Genesis chapter 17, okay? I want to look at this. Now, if you were here on Wednesday nights this past summer, we actually studied the life of Abraham. And, and so this may be a review for some of you if you think back to the study that we did in Genesis, the life of Abraham this past summer. If you weren't here, then, of course, you didn't get any of that, and, and this may be new territory for you. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Abraham, notice He's not Abraham yet either here. He's still Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, Abram was from Ur of the Chaldeans, and he was not living in uh, Palestine. He was not living in, in modern-day uh, Israel or what would become Israel at this point. He was living in the country of modern-day Iran in the time that this, this word came to him. From, from the Lord. And so the Lord says to him, essentially, go from your country, so from the place where, that you're from, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now scan over to Genesis chapter 15 and look at verse 5 and 6. Genesis chapter 15. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as 
righteousness. Then again in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. And when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, to, to Abram, and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. That means basically the, the name Abram meant that he was father, but Abraham meant that he was a great father or father of many. For I have made you the father of a, a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan from an ever for rather an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. This is again a part of the covenant that God has established with Abram. And so what's happening here in the, the life of Abram, Abram, now Abraham, if you study this, is that the Lord has sent him on this journey from the land of his of his ancestry from the land of Ur to the land of Canaan. And there in the land of Canaan, God has promised him that this land where he dwelt would be the land that he would come to possess. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is, is questioning the Lord, saying, Lord, you, you have promised to make me a great father of a great nation. How is that going to happen? Because I don't have an heir yet. And so he's looking at Eliezer and others, and he's, and he's questioning the Lord, who will be my heir? And God essentially promises him, no, it will not be any of these, but the heir will be your offspring. The heir will be your son. It will come from you, from your lineage. And at that point in time, Abraham is not a, not a young man by any stretch of the imagination. And so God leads him outside, says, look at the stars of the heaven. If, if, if you could even number them, that so shall be your offspring, right? And then in Genesis chapter 17, again, the renewal of this covenant, this promise. This will be the land that you will possess. I will make you the father of a great nation. I will establish an everlasting covenant with your heirs that, that, that there will be kings and nations that will come from you. And the way that God fulfilled all of these promises, of course, we, we understand because on this side of history, we see how it has all transpired in the way that it has happened. Of course, God gave Abram his son Isaac, and from Isaac came uh, came Israel, and, and, and from Israel came the, the nation, and, and from this great nation was multiplied the, the children of Israel, and then ultimately came Jesus Christ, and the fulfillment of Christ, and through the work of Christ, the, the covenant blessing was made available to all the nations of the earth, so that both Jew and Gentile alike now can receive this covenant promise, the the the, the the true inheritance of this promise now are all who believe, even as we saw this morning in the passage that we studied, that all who believe are the sons of Abraham. And so what Paul is explaining for us in good detail here in Romans chapter 4, as he is in Galatians chapter 3 as well, is that this promise is extended to everyone who trusts in God by faith. Just as Abraham trusted in God by faith. And Abraham's justification before God came 
through faith. Let's keep reading in Romans chapter 4. We're going to pick back up in verse 13, which is where we left off. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. What Paul is saying is that, again, it's through faith and not through the law that we become inheritance of this promise, that we, that we become the, the children, the sons of Abraham, to use his language in, in Galatians chapter 3. And so we see that it's only faith in Christ that will justify a person in the eyes of God, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it's written, I have made you the father of many nations, and in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So the point here of what Paul is writing is saying, that Abraham had faith in God's promise to him. And that because Abraham had faith in God's promise, that it was counted to him as righteousness. His faith, it literally, you remember it said in the passage that we studied this morning in Galatians chapter 3, that the gospel was preached to him and, and, and because he believed in the promise of God. In other words, the, because God made a promise to him that if you, will, if you will honor me and you will do this, then I will make you a great nation. And Abraham believed that promise. He believed in the hope that God could do what seemed to be impossible, and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Oftentimes, when we start talking about this, the question gets asked, well, how in the Old Testament, how was a person saved? Because you couldn't believe in Jesus, and when the New Testament writes about how it's only through faith in Jesus that a person is saved, was there a different system in the Old Testament? And some would say, well, yeah, in the Old Testament, they kept the law. They honored God. They kept the rituals and the sacrifice, and that was how they were justified. But actually, that's not the case, because this passage and others point us to the fact that even in the Old Testament, it was through faith that someone was justified. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says that there is one mediator between God and man, and it is Jesus Christ. It is the man, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the mediator between man and God. Jesus is the one who accomplishes this work for us. That was true in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament time, that was a forward faith. It was a, it was a faith in God's promise, a faith by hope of things that were to come. And those who believed in God's promise and those who had faith in God, it was counted, that faith was counted to them as righteousness. And Jesus, who would ultimately become the mediator of this covenant between God and man, when Jesus came on the scene and Jesus fulfilled this covenant, uh, then, then 
he became the perfect mediator. So in the Old Testament, we find that there are pictures of this mediation. In fact, the priests and the, the sacrificial system and all of that was intended to be, the law was not intended to be the law itself as the mediator, but the law was pointing forward toward the need of a perfect mediator that would be ultimately Jesus. And this bears itself out in Galatians especially. I'm not going to preach through all of that tonight. I don't want to go through all of that because I want to save it for our study through Galatians. But can I show you another place in the New Testament that points us to this fact that, that Jesus is the mediator of the covenant between God and man. Hebrews chapter 6. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 6 and I want to look at verse 13 in Hebrews chapter 6. Because in Hebrews chapter 6, it talks about how Christ was the mediator of the covenant in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest king in the Old Testament. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Now, let's pause there. If you go back and you look in Genesis, you find that when God established the covenant with Abraham, he put Abraham into a deep sleep. And then he... He took the, the animal sacrifices that Abraham had brought to the Lord and he cut them in half. And then, he, like a pillow of fire, he traveled between the pieces of the animal. And that's the way that it, traditionally a covenant was established. This was the symbol of the covenant. And God did this himself. He swore by himself. He established the covenant on the basis of himself and not on the basis of Abraham and Abraham's obedience because the point of what Hebrews is telling us is because there was nothing greater than himself whereby he could swear, whereby he could establish this covenant. So when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, again, this is important, the unchangeable character of his purpose points us to the fact that there has always been one system of salvation. In the Old Testament, it was based on the promised of Christ, the promise of the one who would be of the Messiah, who would be the ultimate mediator between God and man. And in, on this side of the New Testament, on this side of the New Covenant, it's looking backward to Jesus, who we understand was this mediator of this covenant. So he says that, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so what he's saying is that Jesus himself is the, is the one who mediates the covenant, but Jesus himself is also the, 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 the covenant itself, that, that Jesus is not only the one who makes the promise, but he is the one who keeps the promise by himself, which is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, 
so that he could be both just and the justifier of the one who comes to faith. And, and so the point is that it's only through faith in Christ that we are justified. Only faith in Christ will justify a person in the eyes of God. Abraham's faith led to his salvation. And it was through Abraham that God brought salvation to the entire world. Through Abraham's obedience. But we know that no one is justified by the belief that Christ died for sinners. Okay, hear me when I say by this, because this is going to sound tricky at first. No one is justified by the belief that Christ died for sinners. They're justified by the belief that Christ died for their sin when they by faith receive that promise. You understand what I'm saying? It's not just knowledge that this is how the system works that will save a person, but it's when that becomes personal because by faith we place our trust in Christ as the one who mediates that promise on our behalf that we're saved. So it's not just saying, okay, I understand that it's faith in Jesus that will save a person. Rather, it's when someone says, Jesus Christ died for my sin. And we receive that as, as payment for our sin through personal faith that we are saved. And so in the same way, Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness because he had a personal faith in the promise of God. And for each and every one of us, we will be justified before God because of our personal faith in Jesus Christ as the one who is able to fulfill what God has promised to us. And that is so important that we understand that. It is so important to the understanding of how salvation works in the Bible, that it is always through faith in Christ that we are saved, and not by any other system. We can't point backward to the Old Testament and say, well, it worked differently back then. It didn't. It worked through faith in God in the one who would mediate that covenant. And the priest and the law and all of those things were, were considered to be a, a sign of a need for something greater. That's exactly what Paul's going to go on to argue in Galatians chapter 3. He doesn't use this word, but the word that I use when I explain it oftentimes is that he argues essentially that the law became a babysitter, that the law was carrying us along, showing us our need for something greater so that in Jesus, God might provide ultimately what we need. And we don't need to trust in anything else other than Jesus and his saving power that he can justify us and save us from our sin. So in Romans chapter 4. Let's finish reading through Romans chapter 4. I left off, I believe, in verse 20. Well, with 19, so we're in verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised us from dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the point is that every one of us has to come to this place where the, the promise of God becomes 
not just a great story, but it becomes our story. Where it becomes not just a, a, a grand hope, but it becomes our hope. Because by faith, we place our trust in Jesus Christ and his ability to save us. To be the one who mediates this covenant between God and man. The one who literally carries out this covenant because he offered himself as the sacrifice for our sin. And so God works through us when we respond in faith by saving us, by justifying us, by giving us a, a new position, by giving us a new, uh, a, a new reality, if you would, that we are now saved and we are, we are heirs in Christ of this covenant promise what, a, what an awesome thing. And, and how incredible when we really understand that this story, just as I mentioned before this morning, this story points us to the fact that God has been pursuing you from the beginning of time. You go all the way back to the foundation of time itself, that God has been working a plan, not just that he would redeem mankind, but it becomes personal when you accept that by faith, that, that saving work of Christ, it becomes personal, right? And so God has been working a plan from the foundation of time that he would redeem you from the curse of sin so that you might be justified just as if you had never sinned because of the saving work of Jesus. And that is incredible to think that in all of human history and all the works that God has done and all of the people, not only who are alive on this earth right now, but all of, all of the people who have ever lived, but that God wants you and he has pursued you and his desire is for you. But then remember, as we saw this morning, it doesn't end with us. It never ends with us. Once we receive this covenant promise of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, now we are given a new purpose, a new mission, a new responsibility that we would share that same message with others so that, that we would become a part of God's kingdom work. Abraham had a role to play in all of this. Abraham needed to obey God and follow through on what God had called him to do so that the things that happened would happen. Had Abraham not obeyed God, then the promises would not have come true because Abraham would, would have disobeyed. He would have run from God. And so I, mean, I suppose the question is, would God have worked through someone else? And, and I don't know. We don't know. That's it. It's a guessing game. Would God have done it some other way? Who knows? But the point is, he did it the way he did it. And we see in that that Abraham's faith led to action. And that because Abraham demonstrated by his action that he had faith, he showed that he was justified before God. That he was saved by faith. You and I, as we are saved by faith, it ought to show itself in our actions. And so uh, one other place that I would take us in, in, in Scripture 
to kind of wrap all of this up. And I'm trying to use a lot of different scriptures tonight because I want you to see that this, this understanding is, is really written throughout the fabric of scripture, particularly in the New Testament. If you were to go to James chapter 2, you would find in James chapter 2, uh, Max McKnight and I were even talking about this this morning after church, this passage in, in James chapter 2 that points us to the fact that, that it is by faith that we are saved, but that real genuine saving faith ought to have something to show for itself. That if there is real genuine faith, that, that ought to show itself in the way that we live. And so in verse, I'll just start reading in James chapter 2. I'll start in verse 18. That it says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Not through, not faith through my works. Understand that's important. But faith, I'll show you faith by my works. In other words, the way I live is going to prove to you what I believe. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac at the altar? Question there that it begs. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, this is always a tricky passage because if you just read this passage alone, it's very easy to take it out of context of how it should fit with everything else that the New Testament is teaching and think that there is now a separate way, a different system. But it's important before you go down to the verses that talk about how Abraham and Rahab were justified by their works, it's important, it's important that you go back first and you catch verse 18, which says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, he's not saying that my faith comes through my works, but rather my works demonstrate the, the faith that I have. My works show that I have genuine saving faith, the kind of faith that, that stirs me, that motivates me to action. And so when he goes on to say that Abraham was, was justified by, with it, well, it says faith active with, along with his, uh, with his works and faith was completed by his works. It's not saying that Abraham's faith was dependent upon his works. In saying that his faith was completed by his works, what James is, is saying is that Abraham's works demonstrated his faith. That his works were the evidence, they were the, the proof, if you will, of his faith. The order there is important. It was the faith that led to his, his works. And so when it says that Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, he was called a friend, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He's not saying that it becomes now works in addition to our faith, but he's saying if the faith is real, the works will be there. Now, let's take that understanding and let's go back to what Paul is saying in Galatians. 
In Galatians, Paul is telling us that it's not the gospel, it's not, it's not Jesus plus anything else, that it's, it's faith in Christ alone that saves us. But he's going to point out to us that there is, there is no law against the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. He's going to show us in Galatians chapter 5 that if there is real, genuine faith there, that it will always lead us to action. It will always, always work itself out in, in, in some way that is visible and is obvious so that if our faith is real, it will be obvious in the way that we live. And that's where the works come into the equation. The works don't save us, but they do testify to the saving power of Christ that has changed us, that has transformed us, and is, is, is sanctifying us as we live for him, okay? A lot of territory here. And again, I'm wanting to give you some of this. I, I, I won't go into this much depth with all of this on a Sunday morning because time just simply doesn't allow us to do that and because I really want to stay focused on exposition of those passages in Galatians. I want, to, I want to stick to the text in Galatians and studying and digging into the text in Galatians. But I, I wanted to go after all of these other different places, these other different texts, so that you can see this is a major theme of Scripture, and it's important that we understand it so that we have a proper understanding of how sanctification and justification and glorification, all of these things fit inside of this idea of our salvation. How does all of this work together? What do these terms mean? What is, what's the right way to think of all of this? That it, it fits together really in a beautiful way that we see that it's by faith that we are saved, and that God has been working that plan since the beginning of, of time so that you and I would hear this good news, this hope of Jesus, that we might respond and then we might become a part of his kingdom purpose of sharing that hope with others. What an amazing and an incredible thing. So tonight, as we, as we wrap up, th- this is really what I, I want to do. I want to end with a time of prayer. And in this time of prayer, uh, we're going to have some, some music in a minute. Doug's going to sing the song, 10,000 Reasons. And as he's doing that, I, I want this time of prayer tonight to be a time where, where we can look inwardly. Every one of us can reflect and look inwardly. And we can say to the Lord, Lord, how am I demonstrating to the world around me? How am I demonstrating that my faith is real? How do my actions, how do my works, how does the way that I live my life give testimony to the world around me that my faith is real? And and allow God tonight to bring conviction to your heart. Maybe there is something in your life that God wants to change through the conviction of his Holy Spirit. He he wants to just speak a word that there's there's this habit, there's this attitude, there's this behavior in your life that needs to be different because this doesn't fit with the idea that I've saved you and I've transformed you and that you're now living by my grace. And so I really hope that tonight in, in our response that this would be a time for us to really lay our souls bare before God and say, God, I'm yours. And if there's any part of me that you want to change, any part of me that, that, I, should, that I should repent of in a, in a way that I should live differently or do something differently, I want to be yours. And I want to lay that on the altar before you tonight and, and say, here I am, God. My whole life is yours. Have your way in me. And so, Doug, I want to ask if you'll come and Becky will come and, and play through this last song for us. And as they do that... I want to call on us to just where you are, just to 
to move into a time of prayer tonight. I want to I encourage you to assume whatever posture is comfortable for a time of prayer. If you want to just lean forward, if you want to just simply bow your head and close your eyes, maybe you want to, maybe you even want to uh, come and kneel here at the altar. If, if that is the, the, the case tonight, then, then certainly you feel free to move during this time and, and do that. And I'll be here at the front if you'd like for me to pray with you or if you'd like to grab someone else and ask them to come and pray with you as well so that during this time of prayer tonight and dedication, we would truly offer our lives to God and, and allow Him to have His way in every area, every part of our lives. Let's pray together. Mm-hmm.